Well, hello and welcome to The Pilgrim Way. My name is Norman Graham and I'm a minister in the Baptist Union of Churches in Scotland. The aim of these signposts is to try and help connect the text of the Bible with our lives today. Revelation 13 Then I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. It had seven heads and ten horns with ten crowns on its horns, and written on each head were names that blasphemed God. This beast looked like a leopard, but it had the feet of a bear and the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave the beast his own power and throne and great authority. I saw that one of the heads of the beast seemed wounded beyond recovery, but the fatal wound was healed. The whole world marvelled at this miracle and gave allegiance to the beast. They worshipped the dragon for giving the beast such power, and they also worshipped the beast. Who, who is as great as the beast, they exclaimed, who is able to fight against him? Then the beast was allowed to speak great blasphemies against God. And he was given authority to do whatever he wanted for 42 months. And he spoke terrible words of blasphemy against God, slandering his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And the beast was allowed to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And he was given authority to rule over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all the people who belong to this world worship the beast. They are the ones whose names were not written in the book of life that belongs to the lamb who was slaughtered before the world was made. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Anyone who is destined for prison, will be taken to prison. Anyone destined to die by the sword will die by the sword. This means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently and remain faithful. Then I saw another beast come out of the earth. He had two horns like those of a lamb, but he spoke with the voice of a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast and he required all the, pe the earth and its people to worship the first beast, those whose fatal wound had been healed. He did astonishing miracles, even making fire flash down to earth from the sky while everyone was watching. And with all the miracles he was allowed to perform on behalf of the first beast, he deceived all the people who belonged to this world. He ordered the people to make a great statue of the first beast, who was fatally wounded and then came back to life. He was then permitted to give life to the statue so that it could speak. Then the statue of the beast commanded that anyone refusing to worship it must die. He required everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given a mark on the right hand or the forehead. 
and no one could buy or sell anything without that mark, which was either the name of the beast or the number representing his name. Wisdom is needed here. Let the one with understanding solve the meaning of the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Well, in Revelation chapter 12, the, the dragon, having failed in his attempt to kill the woman and her child, declares war against the rest of her children, whom the text tells us are all who keep God's commandments and maintain their testimony for Jesus. In other words, the dragon has declared war against the church, the beloved of God. The chapter ends with the somewhat strange scene of the dragon standing by the edge of the sea. But that links us to the opening lines of chapter 13, where the dragon enlists help in his goal of destroying the church. The help comes in the form of two beasts, one from the sea and one from the earth. And that takes our minds back to the book of Job. Uh, where in chapters 40 and 41 we encounter two monsters, two beasts, uh, Leviathan from the sea and Behemoth from the earth. Throughout the rest of the First Testament, these two beasts come to represent the evil forces that seek to destroy God's people and to undo God's good creation. Now, despite all the scholarly disagreements regarding this passage, there is no doubt that persecuting and destroying the church is the purpose for which these beasts enter the scene in Revelation 13. But in order to really understand the passage, we need to consider how these two beasts aid the dragon in his war against the church. And the first thing to note, of course, is that these beasts, along with the dragon, form a kind of unholy counterfeit of the Trinity. The dragon mimics God the Father, the first beast mimics God the Son, and the second beast mimics the Holy Spirit. Just as the Father gives his authority to the Son, so the dragon gives his authority to the first beast. And just as the Holy Spirit stirs our hearts to worship the Son and the Father, so the second beast stirs people's hearts to worship the first beast and the dragon. As Johnson notes, evil mimics the true God, which is partly why evil can deceive. It presents itself uh, in the language of divinity. The first beast is a reworking of the vision of Daniel 7, where the prophet sees four beasts, one like a leopard, one like a bear, one like a lion, and one that's simply described as being terrifying, deadly and strong. And he sees these beasts rising out of the sea. The diadems, which represent the beast's false claim to sovereign authority and blasphemous names, provide a further connection with Daniel's vision. In that vision, the four beasts represented four empires that would come and oppress God's people. And here in Revelation 13, the four beasts merge into one, suggesting that the oppressive power of these kingdoms is now applied to this beast. John's readers would most likely have thought of the all-pervasive and oppressive power of Rome, and that may certainly be uh, in view here. 
However, we should note that in Revelation, the oppressive power of the Roman Empire, often seen as an extension of the oppressive power of Babylon, symbolically represents all oppressive empires and world powers that oppress God's people from John's time until the culmination of history and the final judgment. As one writer puts it, the evil spirit behind Rome will also dominate all other world powers that follow it. J.K. Beale notes that the power that's given to this beast is a power which denies the true God and therefore perverts the original divine intention for the state, as in Romans 13, 1-7. The first beast then that rises out of the sea represents the political powers of the state, working not under God as they were designed, but working under the direction of the dragon for his evil purposes. And I think that's an incredibly important truth for Christians to grasp today. The 21st century has thus far been a story of division and the social and political polarisation of Western democratic societies. We are more divided than ever before on issues such as race, gender, religion, politics, Covid vaccines, many other issues, all fuelled by the fake news spread by social media. One of the striking features of this polarisation and splitting of society into issues-based tribal factions is the way that the church has been very much a part of that polarisation and division. I could give you lots of examples, but if you keep up to date with current news or if you are on social media at all, you'll already know what I'm talking about. I have personally had my salvation called into question because I expressed a political opinion that was contrary to the view, uh, political views of another Christian uh, on social media. And that kind of response is actually not uncommon. It's quite typical. In fact, you're either in my tribe or you're uh, not of my tribe. And if you're not of my tribe, then you're opposed to me and I'm opposed to you and never the twain shall meet seems to be the way things are going. But foundational to that approach is the idea that one particular political ideology, left, right or centrist, whatever, is more moral, more righteous and godlier than any other political ideologies that oppose it. And those ideologies are understood to be demonic. However, we should note that the idea of the kingdom of God is as much a political one as it is a religious one. In fact, many have argued that the most political statement ever uttered is that Jesus Christ is Lord. It was that proclamation that got the Apostle Paul into such trouble in Acts 17, where he and his team were arrested for claiming a Lord other than Caesar. And that's the point, isn't it? For if Jesus is Lord, then all others are not. They are merely pretenders to the throne. Many Christians uh, quote Paul's words in Romans 13 about obeying the state as though that were the only thing that the New Testament had to say on the matter. But Paul also speaks in Ephesians 6 about the principalities and the powers and the governing authorities who are pictured as being opposed to God. 
And the language uh, used of the church in the New Testament is political language. It presents the church as an embassy of Christ's breaking into history rule. And in 2 Corinthians 5 and 20, Christians are described as ambassadors for Christ. The church is called to proclaim the message and to demonstrate the values and ethos of the kingdom of God in the hostile environment in which Satan is described as the God of this world. It cannot be overstated that we act as an embassy of Christ's rule, not by proclaiming, promoting or defending the political ideologies of the world. Rather, as Jonathan Lehman puts it so eloquently, the purpose of the church as a political community is to publicly represent King Jesus, display the justice and righteousness of the triune God and pronounce that all the world belongs to this King. To put it bluntly, we are not called to legislate righteousness, but to demonstrate it. As Lehman notes, the church's most powerful political activity is being the church and proclaiming its unique message about Jesus. The kingdom of God is advanced not by state-sanctioned coercion, force or propaganda, but by self-giving sacrificial love. We triumph not by aligning ourselves to the political powers, but through the blood of the Lamb and our testimony of Jesus. Revelation 13 is reminding us that none of the political ideologies that we may agree with, whether they be left-wing, right-wing or centrist, are in any sense godly or righteous in and of themselves. In fact, they are all being used by the beast to fulfil the grand purpose of the dragon, to destroy the church which Christ loves. Our allegiance and loyalty must always be first and foremost to Jesus Christ as our King and not to any political party or to any political ideology. Eugene Peterson puts it well when he writes, our socially expressed behaviour and religiously expressed beliefs are equally political. If the devil's design is to separate our behaviour uh, and our beliefs from the rule of God, uh, politics will be a field in which he deploys his picked troops. The beasts from the sea and earth are the images by which St John will show us that the satanic will covertly at work in these large areas of government and religion. We need to understand that before we rush headlong into aligning ourselves with a political ideology or political party, that these things are part of the powers that are arrayed against God and are being used by the dragon uh, in his war against God and against the church. John sees a second beast arising, this time from the earth. And although he is different from the first beast, he has in common that he speaks with the full authority of the dragon. In the chapters that follow, this beast will also be called the false prophet. As a false prophet, he is a counterfeit of Moses, in that like Moses he performs miraculous signs, and of Elijah, in that like Elijah he calls down fire from heaven. 
As Beale notes, this is an attempt to validate their divine authority in a similar manner to true prophets. All of this suggests that while the first beast's role is primarily political, the second beast's role is primarily a religious one. We can see this in the fact that the authority he is given is used to get people to worship the first beast. And this is in fact its main purpose and goal. Human history affirms that religion can be used to great evil and Christianity is no exception, especially when the church aligns itself to the earthly political powers. The second beast uses religion against the church and he does that in a very particular way. Peterson says it best when he writes that in order to subvert a religious life, it uses religious means with all the trappings of the miraculous. When a person or movement is religious, appears to be on good terms with the supernatural and urges us to engage in religious acts, we let our guard down. For people whose habit is faith, whose disposition in matters of God and the supernatural is towards acceptance, it's easy to be deceived by religious leaders. In the most scathing terms, Pearson describes how this deceit is worked out in the life of the church. It manipulates us economically, getting us to buy and sell at its bidding, marketing advice, solace, blessing, solutions, salvation, good feelings. The devil's strategy here is not the black mass, but the mass market. And he concludes that dragon, sea beast and land beast are a satanic trinity that infiltrates the political world in order to deflect our worship from the God whom we cannot see to the authorities that we can see and to deceive us into buying into a religion or belief system that has visible results in self-gratification. If that's not an accurate description of the church in the 21st century, then I don't know what is. It's worth noting that in the Greek text, virtually all the verbs are in the present tense. The beast is doing all these things live as John sees it, and he continues to do them in history, even in our time. Don't think that this is all stuff that's going to happen at some point in the future. It's been happening, and it is happening right now. We are being deceived from the worship of the true God by uh, uh, the political powers and by false prophets and a false religion in the church. It's fair to say that nothing in Revelation is, or perhaps the entire Bible, has so captured people's imagination as much as the mark or number of the beast, which is 666. It's also fair to say that nothing in the letter has been so misinterpreted or misunderstood. The fact that this mark is on people's foreheads is a clear parody of the seal with which true believers are sealed with the name of God in Revelation 7 uh, and identifies their homage and allegiance to the beast. So, what's in a name? Who is 666? Well, I could spend hours 
just going over some of the main interpretations of this number. One of the most common ways of interpreting it, to interpreting it is to see it as a form of gematria, uh, an ancient practice by which each letter is given a numerical value. So you just have to add up the numbers of a person's name to arrive at a specific number. Uh, one of the most common names associated with 666 was that of uh, Caesar Nero. Uh, but it was based on a misspelled Latin translation of the Hebrew version of his name, uh, which uh, correctly has a value of 616. So that doesn't really work. But in short, applying the principles of gematria to this number doesn't really work in any credible way, mostly because you can fit a whole lot of different names in history into that number. In fact, Adolf Hitler actually works quite well in that model. But also, if it's the name of a specific person, it would have to be a name that was known by to the churches in first century Asia Minor to whom the letter is addressed. Otherwise, it would have made absolutely no sense to them at all. In order to understand this number, we need to remember that all numbers in Revelation are symbolic. In Revelation, both the numbers 3 and the number 7 represent completeness or perfection. So three sevens would represent the completeness of complete perfection. The number 666 falls short three times over. As one commentator notes, it represents failure upon failure upon failure. Six is one less than seven. We should also note that in verse 18, the Greek word anthropos lacks the definite article and is therefore best translated as humanity rather than as a man. This is not a name of a man, an individual person. With all that in mind, we can see it's pointless to try and identify any individual person as the beast. But trying to do that also misses the very purpose of the number, which is not to name the beast, but rather to identify uh, or to characterise the beast as being that which is imperfect and evil. It's not 777, it's 666. No wonder that John tells us that God's people need wisdom. And based on the view that I've proposed here, that wisdom is not directed at identifying the name of the beast, but rather to identifying the ways that the enemy, as a demonic counterfeit of the Trinity, opposes and infiltrates the church. Like the early Christians, we need, especially in these days of both religious and political polarisation, to understand the times. We need to understand the times we're living in. We need to recognise uh, that, that satanic trinity and its, all its counterfeits, political or religious, that would seek to take the place of Christ as Saviour, as Lord and as King in our lives. There's more going on in the world around us 
than is immediately apparent to our unaided senses. You know, George Lucas was kind of right. There is a force at work in the universe behind the things that are going on round about us. But that force is the phantom menace. He's not the true power. He is, is an unholy, evil counterfeit, a parody of the true trinity of Father, Son and Spirit. And we need the wisdom to recognise that and to recognise how that, trini that false trinity, that counterfeit trinity is at work in the world today. May the Holy Spirit grant us the wisdom and discernment that we need to endure these days, to understand the times and to remain faithful and loyal uh, to Jesus Christ, to whom we have pledged our allegiance as our Saviour and as our King. Thanks for listening.